Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. That promise comes from John's introduction to Revelation. It's a surprising promise, given that the apocalypse, as it's also called, is known more for scary symbolism than for blessing. But it does promise blessing. And on this episode of the Living the Word Bible Podcast, we are going to see how Revelation offers practical encouragement to you and to me. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, and my guest today is Lavinia Spirito, founder and teaching leader of the Catholic Way Bible Study, which for 23 years has been the largest lay-led ministry in the Diocese of Lexington, Kentucky. She is passionate about God's Word and the way it changes lives, which leads her to active involvement in parish renewal and evangelism, along with speaking internationally, leading pilgrimages, and much more. Lavinia contributed a number of book introductions to the Living the Word Bible, including the introduction to the book of Revelation, and she has joined me before on this podcast talking about life in the Spirit. Lavinia, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah. Great. Great to be here. Great to be with you. Yeah, so glad to have you here again. Now, you have had an interest in Revelation for many years, as I know, and I see your Catholic Way uh, Bible study calls Revelation one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. Why would you say that? Well, you know, Sarah, I live here in Kentucky in the middle of the Bible Belt, and uh, for many people around me, lovely Christian people, uh, there's been sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the book of Revelation really is. Hmm. Uh, There's been a you know, they think it's a description only entirely of the end times and that it, it calls on various figures which are interpreted literally and not symbolically or allegorically. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, it's kind of a dark, scary book for a lot of people. You know, when I first taught it, I had to kind of approach it first from that point of view so that we could clear the air and then go on to all the great topics that are actually in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to hear those from you. And as I read a minute ago, Revelation actually promises a blessing to those who read it. I think it's the only book that does that. But it's also really hard to read, as you've said. Why would I want to bother with it? Well, you know, it also promises a curse if you add or subtract words to, (laughs) uh, you know, that should be rather um, sobering. So why should you want to read it? Well, you know, I like to, I always horrify my friends because I tell them I read the back of the book sometimes before the end. (laughs) Before the beginning. <laughs> so um, in this case, if you read the back of the book, if you read the last book of the scriptures, the book of Revelation, you will see that it concludes with the victory of the Lamb and the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. Mm-hmm. In other words, we win. You know, <laughs> In other words, we, we as Christians, um, although we go through trials and tribulations, and some of them quite significant, we are assigned a place at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, which is prefigured in the Eucharist. You know, as Catholics, we're so fortunate and so blessed to be able to participate in a taste of heaven. So, you know, if the Eucharist is where heaven comes down to earth, which it is, then the the, the book of Revelation describes a little bit more of what happens in heaven and on earth. Mm. So before we get in more details into the, the meaning of the various parts of the book, can you fill us in on the background and the context? Who was the original audience and why was it written to them? Well, depending on who you read, it's either the Apostle John or John the Presbyter or some guy named John or a priest or whatever. Um, 
traditional theology says that it's probably the Apostle John, that he was exiled. He's the only surviving members of the 12 of the 11 apostles plus one. Um, he's the only one who gets to live to an to a ripe old age. If we think of him as a teenager, perhaps when following the Lord, then by the end of the first century, and there's there's certain differences in interpretation as to when the book was written. The consensus seems to be more it was written towards the end of the 90s AD. Hmm. Then there are people who say, people who I respect a lot, who say no, that it makes references to certain certain buildings like the temple, which are considered to still be standing, in which case it would have to predate 6970 AD. I don't think that's here or there. It should not affect uh, how we interpret it. It's supposed to have been written by John the Beloved, John the Apostle, or John the Presbyter, or, you know, whoever, an inspired individual who loved the Lord. I say that's our main point, right? Because on the Lord's day, it says at the beginning, I was... I was in the spirit. So in other words, he was worshiping on a Sunday because that's what the Lord's day was, right? And he received this really fully formed apocalyptic vision. Now, the, the Greek word apokalypto means a sudden unveiling. Uh, there's also another Greek word phaneropsis that means sort of a drawing aside of the curtain, of the veil. Mm. And it actually was also used in the wedding ceremonies because the, the unveiling of the bride was considered mm. also to be sort of an apocalypse, you know, a small revelation. So we have this idea of things that are hidden or perhaps not well understood uh, being exposed. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that the author employs this style of writing, which is very foreign to us as Westerners, and it's the Jewish apocalyptic style. So it employs all these symbols and all these numbers and colors and and weird animals and uh, just really strange situations, at least to us, by employing a wealth of Old Testament imagery married to a certain Greek first century understanding of things. So it's actually fascinating once you even, and I know that's not what we're doing today, but if you like kind of trace kind of behind what's behind all the symbolism, what's behind all the allegory. But for our intensive purposes, it's a representation of uh, events in heaven and then events on earth. So the reason it confuses people is because it's almost like a split screen. Today we have split screen technology, right? So we have, uh, like if you're watching a movie, you see things happening on one screen and then you see ha- things happening on the other screen. And maybe they're happening at the same time. Well, that would be a way to look at the book of Revelation. We have events in heaven and events on earth. Events in heaven and events on earth. And sometimes they're describing the same event, but from a different perspective. And so for the original audience, it's an unveiling of what? It's a veiling of the of the plan of the of the father. <laughs> you know, it's an unveiling of the plan of the father for not only the end of the age, but probably most of it applies, at least especially the first five or six chapters apply to the church of the first century that was going through a lot of persecution. And was facing some problems, which, yes, were probably typical of them in the first century. But what I like to say is that, yes, okay, so it applied to them in the first century. But it also applies to us today. Hmm. So you may not be a part of, I don't know, the stonemason guild that requires you to worship a certain god. And if you don't do that as a Christian, then you're knocked out of the guild and you can't work. And so there goes your livelihood, which was a problem which was very prevalent in those seven churches that are that. John is referring to, 
But even today, we have parallels, right? You know, we have people losing their livelihoods because they're standing up for the faith, because they're standing against certain certain principles or certain uh, activities, and they're willing to lay their lives down, even if it's only figuratively, by losing their li- livelihood or by getting canceled in today's culture. Mm-hmm. So I think that even though a lot of it has to do with what circumstances that the churches were experiencing in the first century, it also applies to us today. Which is good because I know there's disagreements over exactly which century is receiving the initial reading. And so you can get really involved in trying to decide just what events they're talking about. But the point is really that they're being persecuted in a number of different ways. And so by showing us, you know, maybe back to your unveiling imagery, you know, unveiling who is the bridegroom, who is the bride, where are we in this story? It has truths that uh, are true throughout the ages, whatever whatever time you live in. And in the prophets, we have that nuptial imagery, right? Even from the very beginning of, of God's revelation, God goes immediately to the relationships that matter most in human mm-hmm. life, right? It, to image the relationship that he wants to have with us. You know, so what does he do? He picks the marital relationship as probably the most intense relationship you can have, right? Or perhaps the mother-child or the parent-child. But it's familial relationships that mirror the love of the father. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call about, that's what we talk about, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because we're picking up on all the Old Testament prophets that spoke of Israel as an unfaithful bride and as God as the bridegroom. And Jesus himself, actually John the Baptist and John refers to himself as a friend of the bridegroom, you know, and who's the bridegroom? We know that it's Jesus. So you've talked a couple of times about this wedding supper of the lamb, and that's at the end. And at the beginning, John is on the Isle of Patmos and he gets this vision of things that are to come. Can you just outline quickly kind of what's the structure of the book in between? Because we're not going to be able to dig into all of that, but I feel like if you kind of give an overview, we'll have a few touch points to go from. Yeah, of course. We know that there is an introduction, right? It kind of gives you the the, the scenery, right? You're in Patmos. Have you been to Patmos? I have not. Patmos is a, is a rocky little, miserable little, I mean, now it's a resort, okay? Because all the Greek <laughs> islands are resorts. But at the time... Uh, and it's really close to Ephesus, which is probably where John was bishop, right? So Domitian, the emperor at the time, exiles him, which meant that, you know, you were put on a rowboat or a sailboat or whatever, and you were rowed across to this miserable outcropping with probably, you know, not much in terms of creature comforts. So he's in the island of Patmos, and he receives a vision. You know, I think we can probably call it comfortably a vision, you know? We know that's part of the Christian experience. Great mystics have experienced visions. And even today, we can always stay open to the possibility of receiving revelations from the Lord like that. Oh, a pet peeve of mine. We refer to the book of Revelation singular, not the book of Revelations plural. You know, I hear a lot of people do that. And I suppose it's a common mistake, but the book is Apocalypsos, which is singular in the Greek. So, I mean, you know, it's one revelation, which encompasses, in a certain sense, the entirety of human history. So going back to the introduction, there's John in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he receives a series of visits, of visions. Uh, Of course, first he interacts with a figure who, a mysterious figure who we know to be the Lord Jesus. And then for the next few chapters, he's dealing with the seven churches. Now, 
the thing to understand, I think, about the book of Revelation is that it was meant to be, in a certain sense, a newsletter or a circular letter or... An encyclical, maybe. Yeah, an encyclical, we could say. Something that was meant uh, to be ferried around, probably using the Roman roads, around in a, in a radius around the city of Ephesus. If you look on a map about the location of each of the seven churches addressed by John, you'll see that they're a fairly easy ride or walk or whatever from one city to the next. I, f- I forget if it's like 50 or 60 miles between the two the cities or whatever. And that the idea was meant that it's not just meant for the seven churches, because as we know, right from the scriptures, the, the, the number seven is a number of perfection. So what that means is just, just enough churches, but probably not just seven. Right. So if you send it to Laodicea, then you send it to all the churches there in the valley where the church of Laodicea is, including, for instance, for the church at Colossae, because Paul addresses Colossae in the Colossians, but he also refers to the church at Laodicea. So already there you have a twinning of churches, which I think probably was fairly common. So you have all the various churches that were probably in action uh, at the end, well, at the end or the middle of the first century. So you have this revelation to the angels of the churches. So we know, you know, our faith teaches us that we have certain angelic uh, principalities or powers over protecting nations, right? And protecting churches and protecting people who have important roles, you know, etc. So the idea is that just unfortunately, like we have an angel assigned to the church of Smyrna or the church of Laodicea or the church of, you know, whatever, or Philadelphia or etc., it goes symmetrically, that there would be also perhaps an evil principality assigned. And we know that from the book of Daniel, right? He talks about the angel of the prince of Persia. So we have this glimpse, this fascinating glimpse into um, this supernatural reality where we have angelic forces for and against us. Hmm. And that's what he does when he's when he is addressing the angels. Now, some people say, yeah, the angel of the Church of Philadelphia is probably the bishop. It could be. I don't understand why it has to be either, why it has to be only one thing. I think all these things, especially the book of Revelation of all the books, it's an either or. It's an and or, not an either or. Churches in the first century, but it's also us today. And it's probably every church that has been around from then to now, right? Mm-hmm. It's the angel of the church uh, in uh, you know Philadelphia, Sardis, but it's also the bishop, and maybe it's, you know, something else. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be this only exclusive. I mean, the word of God, especially in Revelation, is like an onion, I like to say. It just, it has all these layers. It has this meaning, but then when you peel that back, there's another meaning. And then when you peel that back, there's another meaning, etc. From there, we go on to the three sets of judgments, the bowls and the trumpets of the seals. And uh, not necessarily in that order. And uh, those represent judgments for humanity for sinful humanity and so it goes in in intensity so you have a quarter a third and then two thirds you know kind of have uh only this many people will be judged at first but then if they don't repent it'll be this many if but if they don't repent it'll be this many so you have this idea of this intensification of judgment that's presented in very colorful language using apocalyptic language. I would say that a working knowledge of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah is pretty important because they use these figures, you know, um, in order to understand exactly the images that John is working off of. 
for us third millennium Westerners, if unless you know your Bible, unless you know your Old Testament, this stuff is awfully weird. You know, yeah. and we got no points of reference. It's like, what? You know, like the dragon with the head and the head with the with the horn and the seven horns and the seven hills. What are we talking about? And the two witnesses. I mean, there's all this imagery basically building up to the climax of the coming of the Lamb of God. On the way, we have interesting passages like uh, Revelation 11 or Revelation 12, the woman in labor. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. I think chapter 11 says, and then I saw the ark in heaven, Mm -hmm. period. And then chapter 12, verse 1 says, and then there was a woman standing and she was pregnant and she was about to give birth. And so we need to keep in mind that there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions until the Middle Ages. So somebody reading this in the first century or even the eighth century or the ninth century would have said something, would have been reading it all together. So when you see the Ark of the Covenant in in heaven, period, and then there's a woman, it should be understood that the woman is also an Ark. She's the Ark of the new covenant. She's Mary, the mother of the Messiah, right? The mother of Jesus. But also she can represent the church and also she can represent Israel. It's again, it's one of those both ands. She's been interpreted to mean a number of things. As Catholics, you know, as a proud owner of uh, images of Our Lady of Guadalupe and in uh, a miraculous medals and all that stuff, obviously the first person coming to mind is Mary. Because she has that crown of stars. Of 12, 12 stars. stars. Yep. Exactly. Which could represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 apostles. Yep. And so, you know, it's all that imagery. I mean, we could just go down a rabbit hole here trying to talk about the, the whole imagery. But the idea is that the, the woman is about to give birth and that the dragon, who represents Satan, uh, if we go back to the book of Genesis, the word used in Hebrew to describe the serpent is Nahash. And Nahash can be translated as dragon. It's not a little cute little green garden snake, you know, we're talking about here. We're talking about some pretty fearsome uh, reptilian looking monster thing, right? And uh, in the book of Revelation, of course, it's described as, rightfully, I think, very effectively, as a dragon. So the dragon is the preeminent opponent of the lamb and of the kingdom. The imagery is very interesting because it says the dragon spews water out from its mouth in order to flood out the mother who's about to give birth. And then the mother goes away. And then you have these enigmatic, she goes away for a certain of 1,250 days, but then another however many days. And so people are in there calculating, well, that's 3,000. What does that mean? You know, the idea is that we're supposed to understand these numbers symbolically, clearly, allegorically. There are those who love to kind of count up the numbers of days. They go to Daniel and they count up those numbers and then they count the numbers up here and then they come up with all these predictions. But I'm not at all sure that that's the way that we need to approach the book of Revelation. One thing I love about that that woman and her child is that I think especially if you're not used to reading all of those other figures, you're not familiar with them from the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or anything else, when you get to this woman and her child and the dragon, it's like all of a sudden you're on familiar ground because everybody's familiar with Genesis. And back in Genesis, we had the woman who was going to give birth to a seed, uh, you know, somebody who would eventually conquer the serpent you know, the, the dragon, the devil. And we don't see them again in the Bible. And we, you know, we see them indirectly, but here they are in living color. 
at the end of time and you see how God brings his plan full circle in this woman who has a child who's destined to rule the nations. Um, and it's wonderful because we, we feel maybe reading through the Bible like the story has been lost. And if we're one of those people living in the first century, or maybe we'll feel like this in a few years if things continue right. to go downhill in our world, you know, we feel like all has been lost. And then suddenly all is not lost. And here are these characters again, and we're reminded that the woman and her seed conquered the devil. And that, as you said at the beginning, the battle has been won. Mm-hmm. So how does it how does it unfold then um, from then to the end of of Revelation to show us that the battle has actually been won? Well, we're going to see the satanic dragon confront the Messiah, the son of the woman, Michael, the captain of the angelic hosts, and also the church, which is also the offspring of the woman. So we have a series of visions in which we see uh, these uh, these confrontations occurring, right? And I think it's very cool to to make the reference back to the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15, because it's so clear. Anybody who, who has an image of Our Lady Guadalupe, who has been to the shrine of Our Lady Guadalupe, just can see very clearly a description of the woman, as you said, yeah. with the 12 yeah. stars and the sun and the moon under her feet and the, the serpent under her feet and, um, you know, the clove with a mantle of star. I mean, it's just, you know, it's uh, clove with the sun. Pretty amazing. So the idea is that the dragon is a composite of, all the beasts that we've seen at this up until this point, right? You know, so we've seen uh, beasts in Daniel, for instance. Remember all the beasts emerging from the sea? Another point in the book of Revelation. Whenever you see something emerging in Revelation from the sea, the book of Revelation, but really most of the Old Testament, it implies the sea for the ancient Israelites was a symbol of chaos. And it was deep. And it had strange animals in it. And Leviathan, you know, the great sea monster, lived in the sea. And, you know, there was just this general distrust. The Israelites were hardly considered a seagoing people, which is interesting, right? Because they're right there on the coast. But the idea is that if you're emerging from the sea, there's something bad. And that's why we have the beast coming out of the sea, which represents chaos and evil. And that way, that's how we know that this is the dragon. And this is, in a certain sense, a conglomerate of all the bad beasts that we've seen between the Old Testament and the New Testament until now, right? It represents a satanic power. Yeah. Now, what about there's another uh, sort of larger-than-life woman that we we meet in Revelation. Um, I think she's in 17, 17 or 18. She's almost like a, a parody of the woman clothed with the sun, you know, the whore of Babylon, the great harlot. Who is she? The judgment of the harlot in chapter 17, the great harlot. So, you know, whoever this harlot city, it's obviously a city, right? Whoever we're talking about, it's a city, not a woman, woman, right? And it's in this city, whoever that city just ends up being, is held up in contrast with the heavenly Jerusalem, mm-hmm. perfect Jerusalem. Although there are those who say this city could have been meant to be the earthly Jerusalem that put Jesus to death, right? We don't know. She's on seven hills, but that's a giveaway. I mean, who? What, what, what's that? That's Rome, right? But if it is Rome, again, I think it's one of those things where I can be both and. If it is Rome, it does not mean it's the Roman church, because unfortunately we have like the whole, you know, branch, unfortunately, of our separated brethren who think that the whore of Babylon is the Roman Catholic church because the seven hills of Rome are described. When the book of Revelation was written, 
it wasn't really the Roman Catholic Church yet, although Peter was in Rome or had been in Rome, had been martyred. So there was a beginning, but it wasn't really perceived quite that way at the writing of the book of Revelation. So really, we're either talking about the Roman Empire, you know, Rome itself, a city built on seven hills. And then, of course, when you get to the number of the beast, remember, there's a dragon, there's the beast, there's a number of critters that are evil, right? Um that are sprinkled through these pages. And when you get to, quote, the number of the beast, quote unquote, if you use the numerology and you take his name in Greek, you'll see that it works out to be 666. And 666, as we know, could have also been, for instance, Nero, Nero Kaiser, you know, in Greek. It fits that 666. But then unfortunately, so do a number of other bad people. So in a certain sense, I wouldn't get too obsessed with what 666 means. The main point here about 6666 is that six is one number short of perfection, which is seven. So if it's 777, so what does Jesus say to Peter? You forgive somebody 70 times seven. That's a perfect number. It's multiplied. It's really amazing. It really means a lot. But when you use six, you're meaning a number of imperfection. So if it's 666... It means this is really, really, and truly imperfection multiplied. And that's how we can understand the number of the beast as it as it emerges. So the, the harlot could be a corrupt, apostate Jerusalem of the first century that put Jesus to death. Israel as a covenant breaker, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But then there's also those who say the beast is clearly Rome and or all political systems that follow that... Um, support the philosophy that you can be saved without Jesus, that we can, you know, the gov- any go- political system that says you can be saved through our governmental structure and not through the power of Jesus. And, you know, the spirit of the Antichrist, God knows, is alive and well even today, right? You know, if you look at it that way. So we have these beasts that come up through the different chapters horrifying beasts that represent world powers who are arrayed against God, who are arrayed against his people. We've got the harlot who is riding a beast who eventually gets consumed by, you know, destroyed by the beast. There's this kind of implosion. It all ends up in this mighty battle between the forces of good and evil, because you've got the beasts on one hand, you've got Michael and the archangels, you've got the lamb. What happens at the end? Well, you know, we have, of course, the fall of Babylon. I think also in the background for most Jews is the famous battle of Megiddo, right? So Megiddo was when the good king was killed. You know, the hope of Israel, the righteous king of Judah was killed and he was killed in battle. And it was a disaster for the people at the time to the point where um, it's carried forth in biblical prophecy as to another battle of Megiddo or at Tel Megiddo or Har Megiddo, from which we get Armageddon, would be a battle that would resolve the initial disaster that happened in the Old Testament. So there's that also as in terms of final battles, because you have those horrifying descriptions as the blood reaches the the bridle of the horses. And uh, you have this idea of certain nations being annihilated. But the idea is that Certain nations are always going to be representing the political philosophies of the Antichrist, and certain nations are going to be faithful. I guess, suppose that's the idea. So God's judgment for this destruction, of course, is because, you know, you look at it and you say like, well, well, this is kind of bloodthirsty, right? But God's judgment is 
for the persecution and the murder of saints and prophets, for the persecution and murder of the Son of God, for immorality. I think another thing that the book of Revelation shows pretty clearly is that political unfaithfulness always translates into social and cultural unfaithfulness, so that you have a political breakdown that is evidenced by the breakdown of the moral fabric of a society. And you and you see that as well. And all the way through, there's a sense that the chaos and the destruction and so on that is being wreaked against evil is measured. It's always measured. It's not indiscriminate, you know, take no hostages, destroy everything in its wake, you know, it's, it's measured and evil is being judged. That is what kind of people remember, I think, the big takeaway from Revelation and what you think of. But the fact is that all the way through, there are these little insets. As you said, there's the split screen going on. What is going on in the other screen while all of this is happening down below? I think perhaps the, the best concept to interpret the, or the lens to look this through is that Greek understanding between two kinds of time. There's Kairos time and there's Kronos time. Mm. Kronos time is the time we inhabit, right? It's, I don't know, 2.45, and then after this, we're going to do something at 3.30. You know, it's like we inhabit chronological time. It kind of marks the years and the, and the ages, and that's, you know, everyday time. Kairos time is God time, I would say. That'd be the best way to explain it. It's the time in heaven. It's it's the time that God inhabits. God as a pure spirit is not ever limited by chronological time, right? We know that before the throne, all history is now. Hmm. So before the throne of God, we have creation, we have the passion, we have the second coming, and we have whatever comes after that. And it's all before the throne right now because God is not limited by chronological time. So in the split screams that, are, that occur in heaven, we could say we're in Kairos time. You know, we're in God time. We're in heaven time. We're in the time beyond time. And in the stuff that's described on earth, we have that sense of being circumscribed by chronological time, by business as usual, even though obviously the images here are horrifying. Mm-hmm. So there's this beautiful sense in which even though John is being lifted into a place where he can see what's going on on earth and he sees this judgment. It's almost like just before it gets too much for him to bear, he gets lifted up and he gets shown a vision of, well, now here's what's going on in heaven. Exactly. And so prior to becoming Catholic, I never heard a great deal about those heavenly times. How do we interpret those as Catholics and why do we often focus on them? I think one of the most reassuring images for me, and I forgot what part of Revelation it's in, is the famous image of the bowl. The angels are in heaven and they're collecting the prayers of the saints Mm. in the great bowl and they're mixing it with incense. At the right time, at the appropriate time, but we don't know when that is. It's obvious that it's the time that God decides, right? Yeah. So, which is always, I think, an encouragement for us to keep praying, right? Because you'll talk to people who say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and then nothing happened, so I stopped praying. I'm like, no, don't stop praying until you, you see what's going on, because you don't know what it takes for that bowl in heaven. We obviously understand that as an allegory, but it's a very effective one mm-hmm. as to how much more God wants us to interact with him on behalf of certain situations, Mm. right? So we have the idea of the angels 
just very obediently mixing the prayers of the saints with the incense and getting ready to tip the bowl over, which means what answers to prayer, right? Uh, at the right time, mm-hmm. not before. That to me is, I think, perhaps one of the most heavenly images that is most consoling. And then, of course, all the other images. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Blessing and honor, power and thanksgiving. You know, all the various hymns of praise uh, that every once in a while, the heavenly people just can't stand it anymore. And they just break into praise before the throne. And I think in a certain sense, that more than anything gives a a taste of what it will be like in heaven. You know, when I tell people, let's praise and worship the Lord, we're practicing for when, God, please God, we all make it to the house of the Father. And that'll be our primary occupation, will be the worship of the saints and the angels to participate in that worship, which comes across so eloquently here with the multitude of the saints and the angels praising God in heaven. So talk about Revelation as kind of a window into the heavenly liturgy that we also participate in here on earth. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we are allowed a glimpse of the heavenly liturgy every time we hear liturgical songs of praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of of heaven and earth. Uh, The heavens are full of the glory of God. Uh, There are so many ways in which a lot of parts of Revelation are reflected within our own liturgy of the Eucharist. And that's one way in which we could bring heaven to earth. In, in fact, the liturgy in heaven is foreshadowed by the liturgy that we participate on earth. Mm-hmm. I liked it, the image of bread and wine, right? So we have Melchizedek out in the Old Testament, and then we have the Passover with the blood and the bread. And then we have the Last Supper, which fulfills the Passover, which gives us the Eucharist, right? But I always tell people, we're not supposed to stop right here. The Eucharist is not going to last forever because eventually the, what everything is is foreshadowing in a certain sense from Melchizedek with his bread and wine all the way up to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that is where we're supposed to end up. And so what is that? Yeah, what is the wedding supper of the Lamb? Where does that come from? That's the consummation of the age. It's, it's the, the end of everything, the, the beginning of the new things, the new universe, the new Jerusalem, the new creatures, new heavens and new earth. And so there, there will be this wedding. So, okay. In first century Palestinian sensibility, one of the most biggest celebrations you could have was a wedding supper, was a wedding, a wedding feast, right? If you see any of the images of weddings, even starting with the wedding at Cana, for instance, I don't know how many people who read about the wedding at Cana understand that that thing went on for days. Yeah. You know, you didn't just kind of show up and do two, three hours and then go home, you know? Plus, you never knew because, okay, remember the two stages of courtship and of marriage within Palestinian first century. There was a betrothal and the marriage contract, and then maybe you'd get to know your spouse at that point. You'd meet them for the first time. And then everybody would go home and the bridegroom would, quote, prepare a place for his bride. In other words, he would build a house or build a room onto his parents' house, right? So there, there you have that image in my father's house there are many rooms, right? So you have that image of Jesus as the bridegroom. So the idea of the wedding supper of the lamb is that just like in ancient times, you never knew when the bridegroom was coming because there was no social media, there were no telephones. You know, you might have maybe, uh, I don't know, a warning of five to six hours that they had been sighted on the road or something that they were coming and then they would prepare a big feast, but you never knew when he was going to come. So the idea is that this sudden arrival or apocalypse revelation of the bridegroom, and then you go into the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the wedding supper is that highest form 
of celebration that would have been understood in the first century. I don't know today what we would compare it to, but it's that idea of the nuptial imagery of the bridegroom coming to his bride and of the final consummation of the Eucharistic imagery. Because at that point, you don't need the Eucharist anymore because the lamb is there, Hmm. right? Because Jesus is with his people. That is so cool. And his people being not just his brother or sister, but his bride. It's beautiful, beautiful. Exactly, so beautiful. So do you have a favorite part of Revelation, favorite passage? Yeah, I think we, you know, I have a lot of favorite passages, but just for the sake of brevity, let's go to chapter 21, those verses that we that we spoke about, which I think really kind of sum it all up. And is that where it's talking about the, uh, about the wedding feast? Yes, precisely. New heavens and a new earth. It's a true climax of the book of Revelation, the establishment of the true city of God and of the heavenly kingdom, now that evil has been destroyed. And the reason that this is such a hopeful book and a a book to get to know is that it gives us that promise. And maybe the fact that the imagery is so vivid is a good thing because it sticks in our minds. And at times when we are tempted to despair, we can look at this and hold it up in front of ourselves as a hope. Because this is this has happened, right? In that Kairos time, you know, this is this is a done deal. We're waiting for it. This is what is waiting for us. So maybe I'll just I will read this, and uh, we can kind of prayerfully meditate on it a minute, and then I'll close us in prayer. So I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. This is verses one to five. Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful close to the book of Revelation and to the story of your word and to our lives. Thank you for this hope that you hold before us. And I pray that you will indeed bless each one who takes the time to read this book and study it and to do it. Help us to remain faithful to the end. Thank you for your word and for the life and strength that it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. So thank you, Lavinia. I know we didn't get to cover a lot, but you've certainly broken things open for us today and given us some little tidbits that um, makes me want to study it all over again. So thank you for that. Before we go, I'd like to know if there's anything you'd like to add, but I'm also hoping that maybe you could recommend, um, do you have any favorite commentaries on Revelation that might be helpful to people? 
Yes, I do. I think the Catholic commentary in sacred scripture, Peter Williamson's volume on Revelation is truly transformative. And the reason I like it is because it gives a scholarly commentary, but then it gives you practical application as well as a Catholic. Yes. Very yes. fresh. I think that may be your best your best uh, bet. I like the Ignatius uh, Study Bible as well, uh, on that as well, the commentary on that. I would say to begin with, that's probably a good a good beginning to look at. Good. I definitely recommend the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. I would agree with that. So anything that you'd like to add? He's coming. And sometimes it seems like he's coming sooner than, than what we thought, you know? And even if it's not the end of the age, I think this is, we're probably living the times we're living in, given current events, look like a pretty good dress rehearsal. <laughs> so, you know, it takes the, the same amount of preparation to be prepared for the end of the age than it takes to be run over by a bus tomorrow. You know, we're all facing our, our end times, right? So let's be vigilant. Let's be ready. Let's, uh, and let's not let, let go of that nuptial imagery of the bridegroom and of the idea that praising and worshiping our God is worth all our time and all our effort. Amen. So thank you. And uh, where can people reach you and find out more about your wonderful Bible study program and the other aspects of your ministry? Our website is Catholic Way Bible Study, so cwbs.org. Those are the initials. You can find us on uh, Instagram, on Facebook. We have a newsletter that we send out. We have a podcast called Real Living. And we have an app on the App Store, uh, which is Catholic Way Bible Study. So there's a lot of ways you can stay in touch, and I hope you do. Good. And you have a website with your information on your pilgrimages and so on? Uh, the website with the pilgrimages is our same website, CWBS. Yeah, we do a lot of pilgrimages. Uh, right now, it looks like we're not, probably not going to Israel, the one that we were planning on going to at Thanksgiving. But um, stay posted and we'll go some other fun place and I'll let everybody know. So this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you will join me every Thursday for conversations with women like Lavinia, who love and live God's Word. And you can also join our Instagram community at Living the Word Bible. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to get a copy of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible or the brand new Companion Journal, they're available to you through the end of this year for a special price. $5 off of each and free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast. And God bless you as you read His Word.